Today is the fifth and final message on questions that you have submitted to be in the New Testament covenant. Is what is given to the believer in the New Testament covenant? What is given to the believer in the New Testament covenant? And I'm going to make an assumption here based on the use of the phrase New Testament. I'm assuming that what's really being asked is, what is given to the believer in the New Testament as compared with the Old Testament covenant? Do all or some or any of the promises given to the Israelites in the Old Testament apply to God's people in the New How much of what is given in the Old Testament carries over into the New? So that's the assumption that I am making. And I'll address this question like a parachute jumper who jumps out of a plane at 10,000 feet and floats down until he lands in a particular spot. I'd like to focus, first of all, on the Old and New Testament realities. Then I'll address the Uh, idea of covenants. Third, we'll look a bit at the promises of the Bible. And fourth, what isn't the believer promised? And then finally, what is the believer promised? So first, the Old and the New Testament realities. In the Old Testament, God chose the nation of Israel in order to reveal himself to the nations around, to the Gentiles. It was a national covenant. And the idea was that the God of Israel was God, was the Lord, the Lord over all so-called gods, and the nations would recognize this. To worship the God of Israel was to be blessed. To serve one's own gods was to be not blessed. And in the culture where nations interacted with nations, often on the battlefield, to serve God meant victory. To serve other gods meant defeat. And to serve the Lord was to be visibly blessed in such a way as to be an explicit witness to the nations. This spring and last fall, I met with two separate groups of guys in my office after the service. And we would read a book of the Bible every week and then talk about it. So, is this sound okay? Yeah? Okay, good. Last fall, one of the books we read was Second Kings. And we were struck by what fell to us, God's viciousness towards the bad kings. But in a time when the religion of a nation was known by its kings... Who the king worshipped was known as the god of that nation. For example, if you serve the Lord, uh, they would say that nation served the Lord. If he followed Baal, then the nation was a Baal-worshipping nation. So for the king to abandon the Lord, the Lord would remove his hand of blessing, and the king would suffer defeat in battle with casualties in the thousands the defeat would be decisive. And the king himself would usually also die in battle or at home by sickness or assassination. But for the king that served God, they and the nation 
would be blessed. So that even Israel would see that to serve the Lord was right. When a good king abandoned the Lord, God would remove his blessing. When a bad king repented, God was very quick to reverse the curse and instead to bless. So by doing so, Israel and the surrounding nations would see clearly that to serve the God of Israel was a good thing, but to abandon him was a bad thing. And for the nation as a whole, if they served God, he would bless materially, that is, physically, with prosperity and victory. When Israel served the Lord, people would see the blessing. So it would always be about God's blessing to make himself known to the nations. That's the Old Testament reality. In the New Testament, God reveals himself not through a nation, Israel, but through the church. It's not national, it's personal. It's through a change in people that God makes himself known. So as the gospel spread from Israel to the world, there was not and is not a Christian nation. If the leader of a nation is Christian, the nation itself would not necessarily be known as a Christian nation. But in the first years after the resurrection of Christ, there were committed believers in every country surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And today, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of three billion people who name the name of Christ. And as my wife said to my son the other day, it happens one person at a time, one heart at a time. In fact, during the time that we were here together just this morning, thousands of people across the world will come to faith in Christ, one at a time. So this is a New Testament reality. So God made himself known in two very different ways in the Old and New Testament reality. And so he makes himself known to people in very different ways. Now, what about the covenants that occurred within these two realities, those of the Old and New Testaments? Well, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn promise, a contract, either between two parties, I'll do this if you do that, or from one party to another, I'll do this, period. But more than a contract, to breach the terms of a covenant had serious consequences. For example, there was a ceremony in which the two parties, or two representatives of the two parties, would cut up animals and line up the pieces opposite each other. And then the two people would walk together through the two rows of animal parts, the implication being that if either party would break the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And that's the covenant-making protocol in Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. But most of the time, when the Bible speaks of the covenant, it means that covenant that God made with Israel after they left Egypt. 
So three months after they left Egypt, being released from slavery, they came to Mount Sinai. And there, they and God made a two-party covenant. The terms of the covenant were the Ten Commandments. Moses was a mediator. And Israel promised to obey the commandments. And God promised to be their God and to protect and to bless them. Then Moses sprinkled the people with blood, the altar, which represented God, with blood. And then the leaders of the people had a covenant ratifying meal in Genesis 24. And two copies of the terms, the two tablets, were made, one copy for, for Israel, one copy for God. In this case, though, God kept both copies, and they were put in the Ark of the Covenant. And by so doing, God was saying that if the covenant was breached by either party, God would pay the price with his own blood, which is exactly what happened. Israel failed quite willfully to keep the covenant, and God in Christ shed his blood and paid the price. So this covenant was set in the Old Testament reality. In the New Testament, with the death of Jesus, the terms of the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, are fulfilled. God has died. Galatians 3 and Hebrews chapter 9 both say that the covenant is over when one of the parties dies. So Jesus, says the book of Hebrews, died bringing the Old Covenant to a close. And in his Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus puts a spin on this idea. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And so by his death, his blood, Jesus is bringing the old covenant to a close, but his death is also the beginning of a new covenant. It's a covenant not based on law, but grace. It's not a covenant based on external conforming to a set of behaviors, but on the internal transforming of a person. It's not a covenant based on birth into a nation, but on the new birth, born again into the kingdom of God. It's not a covenant based around the temple, around Jerusalem, but centered on Jesus Christ, the new temple, according to John chapter 2. The old covenant is obsolete. The new covenant has come. So, Old Testament, New New Testament covenant. Now, what about the promises made in these two covenants? Two things to be aware of. A, both the Old and the New Testament use the word you almost exclusively in its plural form. That is, when the Bible talks to you, it talks to the people as a whole, not to each person. And B, most promises in the Old Testament are not covenant promises, but promises made to particular people at certain times. For example, Jeremiah 29, verse 1, common on bookmarks and greeting cards, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you hope in the future. 
Now, is this a generic promise of God applicable to each one of us? It's a promise made to the exiles in captivity in Babylon who thought that they had been abandoned by God and wanted to rejoin the Jews in Jerusalem. But God, in that context, says, I sent you there for your own protection. Judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem, but you have been removed from Jerusalem and will be all right. So the promise is not made to an individual, a graduate, whose future is bright with promise, but to a people who had thought they'd been forsaken by God and who lived as captives in a foreign land. Or Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Is that blessing a blessing for each Christian that we, if we give an offering to the church, God will bless us financially more than we can imagine? This promise is made to a people in the Old Testament reality who were neglecting the building of the temple and using their income for themselves. And God removed his hand of blessing and said, use your money to build my house and I will bless you, plural. Again, it's about God's witness. If the people were seen as serving the Lord, building a temple to honor him, blessing on the people would come. So despite the song that we sang as kids, not every promise in the book is mine. Not every word, not every line. And we need to be conscious of that, and especially the use of the word you in plural. We need to be aware of taking Old Testament promises to them and turning them into New Testament promises to me. So all of this is background to our question, what is given to a believer in the New Testament covenant? First, the difference between the Old and New Testament realities. Then, between the Old and New Covenants. And third, a word about promises in the Bible. Now, fourth, what is not promised to the believer? Or, more specifically, what is not guaranteed as a promise to claim? The believer, the Christian in the New Testament, cannot claim prosperity. God blessed Israel materially so that the surrounding nations would see that the God of Israel was better than their so-called gods. It was always to glorify God among the nations. In our, our culture, God doesn't bless materially. In our culture, prosperity might mean that our stocks went up or our business, business went well. People would people would not necessarily identify our prosperity with God. It wouldn't lead to God's being glorified. And anyway, nowhere in the New Testament is prosperity or material blessings promised to the Christians. Nowhere. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. 
It is said, as children of the king, we should live as children of the king. But how did, how did children of the king live? Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. James was beheaded. The apostles were beaten. Paul was persecuted everywhere he went. So to claim prosperity is to claim something that God has not promised. The believer cannot claim health. It is true that all who came to Jesus and Peter and Paul in certain circumstances in order to be healed were. But Paul himself had ailments and Timothy did too. Now I think that God desires to heal more than we ask him to. And James chapter 5 says that we will be healed if, A, the elders pray for us and anoint us, and, not or, but and, B, if we confess our sins one to, one to another. But again, nowhere in the New Testament does it claim that in Christ we have the right to be healthy. And this hits close to home for me. With my health issues in the last couple of years, and especially right after surgery, you all prayed for me. And more than that, many other churches prayed for me. It's not an exaggeration to say that thousands of people prayed. And many of you still pray for me daily. Now, is our God the kind of God who sits back with his arms folded ignores the prayers of thousands of his children and waits for my faith to hit a certain level and for me to just claim it. And only then will he heal. No, he is not that kind of God. And so that God wants Christians to be, to prosper and to be healthy is unbiblical. That God wants Christians to be materially blessed, prosper, and to be healthy is unbiblical. It's insidious. Instead, we follow the one who had no place to lay his head, who said, take up your cross and follow me. And then there are countless Christians across the world who have their wealth taken away because they follow Christ. Now, after all of that, what is given to the believer in the New Testament? New Testament covenant. The inner things, the better things are given. We're given in peace in the midst of our trials and anxieties. That we can claim. The story is told about a painter who was commissioned by a rich man to do a painting representing peace. So he proceeded to paint a very pastoral field, that scene. Fields, sunshine, a creek running through it, a few light, fluffy clouds. And the rich man, rich man looked at the painting and said, ah, Something artificial, that doesn't capture peace for me. So the painter tried again, this time in indoor setting. 
living room, cozy fire, a dog curled up in his sleep. Rich man looked at this painting and said, no, that doesn't really do it for me either. So the painter tried a third time. This time, however, he painted a cliff at the edge of the sea in a storm surrounding it. The clouds were black and boiling. The falling rain was ripped around by the wind. The waves were like mountains crashing against the rocky shore. But up in the cliff, above the waves, sheltered deep in the rock, out of the reach of the wind and the rain, the painter had painted a bird protecting its chicks and keeping them warm under her wings. The rich man said, now that is peace. Are you anxious about anything? Take it to the Lord in prayer. And the peace that is beyond understanding, a peace that makes no sense in that circumstance, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That you can claim. We are given hope in a world that seems to grow increasingly dark. We have the certain hope. That was, that's what faith is. A certainty of things invisible. A certain hope that the tunnel will curve and we'll see a light and we will emerge into the daylight. His hope in illness, his hope in depression, his hope in loneliness, it's a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, the hope of things unseen, the hope that this world, with all its troubles and persecutions and sickness and death, this world is not the final word. We hope for heaven. We are given the protection of our unity. If we look to God and not our, at our differences, we are bound together in love as one. We love one another. We are promised Jesus' own presence. We are promised the Spirit of God to guide us into truth, to give us God's wisdom. We are promised forgiveness through Christ. We are promised resurrection. We are promised union with Christ. We were promised strength to face everything that we face. We were promised a way out of every temptation. That is what a believer is promised in the New Testament covenant. A covenant centered on Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these gifts. I'd rather be a man of peace and hope and forgiveness than a man of wealth than healthy. And that as we fix our eyes on you, you pour out these things upon us. And so we're thankful for that. We, we ask for your help and your grace at our keeping our eyes fixed on you because there's all kinds of distractions. But you alone are the source of these wonderful gifts. And help us to draw near to you even as you draw near to us. 
God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, the Holy Spirit who dwells in and among us. To you be all glory. You are perfect. All your gifts are perfect. To you be all glory and praise and honor and blessing from us to you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here, and don't, don't go too quickly. Spend a minute thinking about these things. But as you go from here, go as a people, forgiven people, a people of faith, a people of hope. And spread it, glorify God by spreading into the people around you. Go in peace. God is with you. Amen. You're dismissed.